Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're talking about the gospel of Jesus's wife. Yes, the gospel of Jesus's wife. If you don't know, it's a famous forgery. And it actually is an interesting sort of scandal within academia that has some interesting discussions going on, even at major academic conferences like SBL for the past couple of years. And recently, a journalist named Ariel Sabar has just put out a book sort of chronicling the whole sequence of events. It's called Veritas, A Harvard Professor, a Con Man, and the Gospel of Jesus's Wife. And to discuss this today, we have Dr. Logan Williams, who has a PhD from Durham in the New Testament. How's it going, Logan? Hi, John. Doing well. A bit uh, sniffles for some allergies, so I apologize if I sound a bit clogged up. Oh, bummer. Well, no worries. And we're also joined by a very special guest. We have Dr. Christian Ascalon, who has a PhD from Cambridge in New Testament textual criticism, specialized in the Coptic manuscripts of the Gospel of John. How's it going, Christian? I'm doing very well. I'm very happy to be here. Brilliant. So let's go ahead and talk about this gospel of Jesus's wife. What is the gospel of Jesus's wife? What are we talking about? Well, in short, it's a particular fragment that is just maybe the size of a business card. It contains a few lines of text and is extremely fragmented. It's written in Coptic, ancient Egyptian language uh, that is somewhat similar to Greek in some ways. It was sold by a purported collector to Karen King of Harvard Divinity School, who holds the oldest chair in early Christian studies in all of the United States. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it goes back before the Revolutionary War even. She presented this fragment, which was purportedly written, or putatively, as, as she supposed, written by some uh, alternative uh, sects of Christianity. And it says a few things, but one of the things that it says is Jesus saying, my wife. And so Jesus identifies that he has a wife, which indicated to King that some early Christians believed that Jesus perhaps had a wife. And it is speaking about a particular Mary. This was to King an indication that uh, not necessarily that Jesus had a wife. She never thought that that would have indicated as such, but it at least indicated that some Christians had a version of Christianity in very early times in which they believe that Jesus had a wife. So it does give us a, what Karen supposed is that this gave us a window into alternative versions of Christianity who, who would tell the Jesus story in a bit, a bit differently from what we might perceive as mainstream, more mainstream Catholicism or other forms of Christianity. So uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a sensational find. It got a lot of attention uh, and that we'll, we'll be discussing uh, the rest of that. Uh, in yeah, it was quite sensational. There's a lot of media buzz uh, about it. There was a major presentation at a Coptology conference in Rome in 2012. But there was another manuscript that the collector uh, purported to have, which was a Coptic fragment of the Gospel of John. And that's where our special guest really comes in. Because over the course of sort of the revelation of this gospel fragment, this gospel of Jesus's wife, as it came to be called. A number of scholars chimed in and were able to sort of, you know, determine that this was a a forgery through a a series of, you know, arguments that were sort of mounted progressively. But one of the 
smoking guns in this whole thing was really the work that Dr. Christian Askelon uh, did. And so we're really excited to have Christian on today to, to chat with us about, about all of this. So Christian, could you tell us a little bit to begin about your own research and what your focus was back when this whole controversy began? I finished my PhD in Cambridge in 2011. My wife refers to my PhD topic as the the conversation killer. So um, if the podcast listener will just be patient with a second. I promise it gets more interesting. But it related to using early translations, especially the Coptic translation and the reconstruction of the Greek New Testament. So I'm a New Testament scholar. I do textual criticism and I'm trying to get, in this case for John's gospel, the earliest possible reading using what are really several translations of Coptic into various dialects and manuscripts that date from usually about the 4th to about the 12th centuries to restore the text. So could you describe to a layperson, perhaps, what Coptic is, why it's even important for the study of early Christianity, both in terms of textual criticism and in terms of just the history of Christianity in general? I like to say that Coptic is the new Greek, and uh, it's it's one of the three versional languages that are most important for church early church history and New Testament textual criticism, those being, in addition to Greek, obviously, Latin, Syriac, and Coptic, usually in that order, because as Christianity spread, even though the New Testament was written in Greek because everybody read it, but it wasn't necessarily their house language. So they were very likely, um, some of them were speaking Greek at home, but many of them were speaking ancient Egyptian or Latin, or Aramaic, which, which comes down to us through Syriac in, in the Christian stage. But Coptic is the last stage of the Egyptian language. And we, we're, we live in an era where we say that all cultures are equal and they have equal value and things like that. But actually, when it comes to writing systems, some of them aren't as good as others. And the Egyptians, uh, they, they had, had a time with it. They had a very ancient writing system. We are all familiar on some level with hieroglyphics. But that was too hard just to have your basic set of characters. You're talking about four or 500 characters, maybe. And that's not really a full set. You, you move into the thousands. You have to have thousands of pictures that you have to be able to read and comprehend. So they created a simplified system, which was hieratic, which was still something that you dedicate your life to if you wanted to understand it, but still too complicated. So they created demotic, which had, um, you know, you're, you're now down into, I think, less than 100 characters but not a standardized system, only used in Egyptian temples, really. When Christianity came to Egypt, it was very much a literary movement. It was a movement that was interested in social justice and poor people. And in terms of monastic asceticism, part of it was must have been some kind of literacy campaign that involved with writing the ancient Egyptian language in Greek characters, in the 24 characters of the Greek alphabet, with about six or seven, depending on the dialect, about six or seven additional characters that are taken from Demotic, that other stage. The one character that you get in Coptic that really isn't totally necessary from Demotic, in other words, it doesn't represent a sound which you would have in Egyptian, is actually a cross, which makes the T sound. It's quite interesting. But for a thousand years, uh, Egypt is a Christian country, very much so and produces monasticism in, in the form that would take hold in, in Europe and many of the most famous Christian theologians in the early church. Are you talking about the fact that they also produced lots and lots of manuscripts? Egypt's been very kind to us in terms of dry sands and the shifting of the Nile, especially in about the 8th century. Entire, entire canal networks collapsed, so cities became ghost towns, maybe not literally overnight, but certainly within, um, within weeks and months. And so these, these cities and their, their garbage piles have been preserved 
in some cases just perfectly in terms of retrieving the manuscripts. Some of our best manuscripts, though, come from around the fourth century. People think about the Nag Hammadi codices, which were found just after World War II. And then there's another set that's not as well known called the Dishna Papers. And these are some of our earliest Greek papyri of the, um, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And really, in terms of complete Bible manuscripts, your best ones are going to come consistently from Egypt. Almost all of your papyri come from Egypt. That's really helpful context. So let's get to the actual announcement and presentation of the gospel of Jesus's wife in Rome back in September of 2012. So I know, Christian, you you weren't in the room where it happened, but you were in the Rome where it happened. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience? What was that? What was that like? So I had I had talked to a couple people who had let me know there was going to be a very big announcement. I think one of them was actually Karen King's husband who, who mentioned this, and he'd come to Rome to be there for that event. And I talked also to, spoken also to a graduate student who had indicated that something very big was going to be happening, which to me, I think a lot of times we all think that our things are very big. I mean, maybe I don't because my wife lets me know that she, she reads my work for me and lets me know that sometimes it's not that interesting. But I, I did have something, I had the idea that something was on the horizon of the Nag Hammadi, but the problem at that point was in terms of getting excited about this is we already have so many texts that say so many fantastic things that the level for shock is set pretty high in terms of what would actually happen to, ha- to surprise some of us who were in there. For me, I was in a, a simultaneous session on Coptic Bible presenting on the project I was doing in Vupertal where we were reconstructing the earliest text of the book of Revelation. This is a project that really is just finishing up right now. but. The next morning, I heard heard that night a bit about gospel, of, you know, gospel of Jesus' life, and we, we were walking around. I remember telling my Norwegian colleague that I was with is that we should make a forgery someday and just stick it in and into a collection somewhere and not say anything. And he would he could write it up and pull some text from Gospel of Thomas, and I would translate it into Ascension of Isaiah, which is the most obscure Coptic dialect I could think of. And we just leave it there for someone to find someday or something like that. We had no idea at that point that it was a forgery. The next morning we got up and, and actually a lot of people were talking about this. So I remember pulling it up on my laptop, had no idea, even though I knew something was going to be announced, that it was going to be a media sens- sensation all the, really, all the way across the planet. And so I was looking at a New York Times picture of this manuscript and, um, and sitting there with other colleagues and we were put it, picking it up and, and handing it around. What struck me is that it had been commended by Roger Bagnall, who's probably the most famous papyrologist on the planet. And he had, he had asserted that it was a real manuscript. So for most of us, when you have something like that, we, we thought this was for real. We all, at least as, as an initial assessment, assumed it was for real. I remember showing it around. The, uh, the provenance was clearly from East Berlin. So there was part of me that was looking at it and thinking, this doesn't look like a literary manuscript because the letters, the letters don't, they're not, they're not formed with the kinds of strokes that proper literary manuscripts were formed. There's certain ways that you do epsilons and sigmas, and this wasn't, this wasn't doing that. It doesn't look like a documentary manuscript because it doesn't, the letters don't ligature together. So I'd never seen anything really like this. And I remember showing it to my German friend thinking, you know, if there's a forger, it probably would have been him. And he looked at it and said, looks like a forgery to me. Don't, what do you think? <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, if he says it's a forgery, then this, this must be. Pretty quickly, to my knowledge, people started identifying a host of problems 
that suggested very, very strongly that this fragment in particular was uh, a forgery. So uh, what, what, what were some of those? So say, first of all, there was a generational dynamic to this in which you had some people, uh, first scholar to go online and say something was Aline Suchu, and he did it on Facebook. So this was, this was the kind of thing that somebody who has a Facebook account and uses Facebook is, um, is going to do. Back then, Facebook was still cool, and then Instagram wasn't, wasn't, and Twitter weren't as big a deal as they are now. People at the conference were saying all kinds of things. I remember one person saying, look how it's cut right across the top. Isn't that convenient? It looks like somebody has taken a piece with writing on it, cut the blank piece off, and then inscribed that. The ink doesn't have the kind of viscosity you'd expect from an ancient ink. In other words, they put some cedar oil or something else in it to make it gooey and sticky because you don't want your ink just running all over the place. Remember when you painted with pastels when you were a kid and you said, hey, mom, look, and you held it up and it all just ran down and, and whatever unicorn or whatever suddenly turned into a cow because it was running all over the place. Well, that's what Gospel of Jesus' Wife looks like. It's just this watery ink that it, it looked like somebody knew enough to know that they used use burnt material, either plant material or animal fat. And uh, that was that there was carbon in there, but they didn't know to put some kind of sticky stuff in there. And then, of course, there's the paleographic issue. This is the fact that it, it looks like Latinized versions of Coptic, which is what it was. We actually can see what it was, you know, it was, what it was taken from. It doesn't look like it was copied from a real manuscript. So one of the things I noticed is that if you take an old papyrus and then you write ink over it, ink will get in the cracks of the papyrus. It will get over the edges where something is frayed. That is an instant indication of forgery. And that's actually, interestingly enough, how it was, I believe it was one of the main reasons for deciding that the Dead Sea Scrolls of Museum of the Bible were also fake. I actually suspect that when I look at this, it looks like this guy knows this. It looks like somebody knows that they can't write over the edges. There's no uh, half letters or anything. Uh, it very much seems like all the letters are jammed into this margin, which already exists, of this scrap of papyrus he already has. So it really looks like someone is you know, writing on a really small Word doc and that they had the size beforehand because none of the, none of the letters are split in half or anything. And they're like jammed in there to make sure that this guy never, ever writes over a crack or an edge, because that'd be a dead giveaway. But even that, even avoiding that, that doesn't look like a real manuscript. Manuscripts have half letters and smudges, you know, going around the edges. Of course, they're not in the cracks of the edges, but it's, you know, in every manuscript that's fragmentary, you have, you'll have half a letter here or there. Every letter is super clear in this manuscript and fits perfectly in the margins of a, of a purportedly fragmented papyrus. One of my contributions to Coptic studies is I've built a, a database for searching through fragments because usually you can't, when you find Bible fragments, you can't tell what it is. You can tell it's a literary text from the script, but you, you need something to search with regular expressions because you'll have just three letters on each line and you can guess how many letters are, are lost from comparison with other manuscripts. But this is, this is one of the other ways. And the pieces are scattered between different museums and so you have to put them together. Uh, there's a project in Basel, Switzerland called Describes that that's looking at these issues using digital tools to put, put things back together. But that's exactly right. The idea that you would get such a small fragment that preserves so much text that you have essentially a complete sentence on every single line is remarkable. <laughs> also, uh, could you talk about uh, some of the grammatical problems with the fragment? Some of these become very arcane, but if we give a little bit of a timeline to our listeners. 
it, it may be helpful because the grammatical problems become an immediate point of discussion after the conference. Everything is put online and scholars who are at the conference as well as a lot of scholars who weren't at the conference are immediately talking about this. So the, uh, the grammatical problems, the, the one that's gonna be the most important in my mind is gonna be on the first line uh, and I'll leave that to the last. But I'll just mention one at the bottom in which there's a bad man who habitually swells, but it's nonsense. Like it doesn't even, the word can't even mean swell. The bad man isn't declined right. There's, there needs to be an article. If you have an adjective and a noun, one of them's got to have an article. And the other, it doesn't matter, honestly, which one in Coptic, but somebody's got to be either definite or indefinite. It doesn't have either of them. And so it doesn't really make sense. Now, people were trying to figure out what this is. And if you're ever going to make a forgery, mistakes are okay. Because scholars won't look and say, look, it's a forger's mistake. They'll say it's an archaism or it's a new word or something like this. And instead of discussing forgery, they're going to talk about whatever thing that they're into that they're going to read into the text. And that's exactly what was happening with the swelling. So instead of, instead of saying this is, we've never seen anything like this before, it's fake, they'd, they, they could be tempted to say, ah, look, here's this aspect of Coptic, dialect of Coptic that we never knew about. Exactly, yes. Now then, some of us started getting emails and then things showed up in the internet. I got an email from Simon Gathercole, who was relating various similarities to the Gospel of Thomas. And then I think it was on Mark Goodacre's blog that Francis Watson put up a, um, a more definite list where he'd pushed it even further. I don't, I don't know that he'd been interacting directly with Simon. The real point where all of us were quite shocked was when one Andrew Bernhard, who published a volume on apocryphal gospels. He's got a master's degree from Oxford and the volume's been very well received and it's a standard edition. He had noticed one of the more bizarre pieces, which was in the first line, which says, my mother, she gave to me. And then people assume it says life. But the problem is life needs something indicating that it's the direct object based on where it's placed. It doesn't need that if it's placed right after the verb. But in this case, it's to me, life. And so we need that object marker to indicate that life is the object, and it's not there. Now, later on, as the discussion went on, they found instances where this is actually la lacking in documentary texts, where it seems that it's actually an error. But we don't have this. Now, every line, what these scholars find, can actually come from something in the Gospel of Thomas. But what Bernhard was able to show was that that funny line with the swelling was actually a Frankenstein's monster, where somebody who didn't understand how the Coptic negative and positive habituals were formed tried to take a negative habitual and a positive habitual, put them together, and the word that sounds like swelling it actually has to do with the positive habitual. But the clincher was the other one, because they show that it wasn't just a line for a line cut and paste from the Gospel of Thomas. It was a line for line cut and paste from a particular PDF of the Gospel of Thomas which had been made very quickly and reformatted, and in the reformatting had lost this, it's the letter M before the word life. And so they were able to bring it to a particular PDF on the internet, and it was this fellow named Michael Grondon who's got a key site for Gospel of Thomas discussions and research on the internet. And this is called the patchwork hypothesis. This is the point where scholars went from saying, boy, that sure looks like a fake, I can't imagine that's a real manuscript, to saying, this is a forgery based on a 2002 PDF of Gospel of Thomas. 
Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, that's really fascinating. That was one of the most interesting parts of the, of the book for me. And I'm curious more generally, Christian, how often do you encounter forgeries and how do you even go about discerning this? And, and wh- why do people make fakes in the first place? People who work with papyri will usually find blank pieces where somebody's taken, oftentimes it may be just a blue pen and they've written gibberish. Sometimes they're, they're copying you know, various things. I, it was ironic to me that after going through the Gospel of Jesus Wife thing, I took a job with the Museum of the Bible and was involved with two projects that did not start and that were both run by very famous scholars who had credentials very much that were at the Harvard level. Both of them were involved with stolen manuscripts and forgeries, which was, you know, so, so it's, it's happening a lot. But I think those lousy forgeries that are made with blue pens sometimes cause, give people a false sense of security. In other words, when you see something that's just written in gibberish, you think, well, like that's obviously forgery. I can tell somebody wrote that with a blue pen. And what threw people here is that it actually, you could read this, it said real things in Coptic. And I don't think people realize actually how common these kinds of things are. And there's a few stories that I could go through really quickly. And there's actually a lot of stories that I could go through quickly. Some of them are quite humorous. I think sometimes people do it just to be funny there in 1950, Paul Coleman, as a joke, I think he was making fun of his colleagues in the religion department at Princeton. He published something called An Amusing Agraphon, in which Jesus is, um, and the, the story behind it is it's too much to go into now, but he goes back into his military career and visiting a certain Mohammedan, as he says, and blah, 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 it just goes in. But it's this, this passage that he has in which Jesus is asked by one of his disciples, um, he, he talks about the the, the cursing and the gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness. And one of the disciples says, well, what if someone doesn't have teeth? And Jesus says, teeth shall be provided unto them. Right? Total fake. There's no real, like, there's no manuscript of this. He just did it as a joke, right? And he got it published in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly. The only way people know it's a fake is because Bruce Metzger, he said it to the students in his class, and Bruce Metzger was one of his students. There's obviously the secret gospel of Mark. And in many ways, that's what, for many people, Gospel of Jesus' Wife is all about. Secret Gospel of Mark is, um, again, a very complicated story in terms of where it actually comes from. But in Secret Gospel of Mark, you have Jesus revealing the secrets of the kingdom to a young man. And it's implied in the text that he may be, there may be homosexual activity between this certain young man and Jesus. And this is, this is a, huge, a huge thing in the, in the early 90s, around 1991. And it's right around that time that there's another prank which shows up in Ariel Sabar's book, which is the Demotic Gospel of Thomas. Now, mm. if you understand Demotic's pagan temple language, if you have the Gospel of Demotic, the Gospel of Thomas and Demotic, this would be the earliest, you know, one of the earliest Christian manuscripts, period, because Demotic is really dying out in the fourth century. And then to have the Gospel of Thomas. And so this thing is, it's mailed in to be published to a journal. And of course the story gets so complicated, I can't give it all here, but mm. it's mailed in as to, to be edited and published as a group of ISIS sayings. And the journal editor sees it and says, ISIS says, ISIS says, ISIS says, and he, is, and this is part of the trick if you want to trick someone with a forgery is you have to press that button and get them to discover something. Mm. The journal editor says, this isn't ISIS says, this is Jesus says, and he's the one who, who kind of discovers it. Well, I think it was an Oxford Cambridge joke and i think that it was a cambridge professor playing a joke on his oxford counterpart and it went into the into the newspapers all over the world and before they realized that 
the person who proposed it, Batson de Sealing, Sealing was was actually a joke and not a real person, and it was a play on the words Batson mm-hmm. the Belfry. So there's a long history of fakes showing up, and it's not. It's I'm sure we're not done with them yet, but mm-hmm. you'd like to think that scholars have learned a thing or two. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, like financial sort of considerations play into it, jokes, like you said. But that point about the secret gospel of Mark is interesting because it's there, there's a political impetus sometimes too, right, to score some political points, right? For example, in the secret gospel of Mark, it may be to sort of change the way we think about how the church has related to homosexuality. In the case of the gospel of Jesus's wife, we might want to rethink, for example, celibacy in the Catholic church, you know, uh, Christian sexual ethics, like, or, or even just generally how we think about uh, Jesus and sexuality in particular. That also seems to be part of this too, right? I mean, there's this kind of like drive to sort of score some points politically, ideologically as well. These are certainly conclusions that you see in some of the interviews. You see it come up and discussed in Ariel Sabar's book. I think a lot of times you do, you do feel like it's, it's unclear whether it really stops there too, whether people are, are confident to say that, hey, we don't really think that Jesus wasn't married, that sometimes it may even, may even be a subtle nod to the Da Vinci Code. Mm. This, of course, comes up a great deal in the book. Mm-hmm. So according to you, the gospel of Jesus' wife was a probable forgery that was able to be recognized as such within 24 hours of its public announcement and a certain forgery within a month. Many remained convinced, however, especially among North American journalists and academics, that the gospel of Jesus' wife might actually be authentic. So tell us how you found what one Coptologist called the smoking gun. So the original announcement was back in the 18th of September, 2012. And after really a lot of media sensation, everything went dark and a lot of us didn't know. We'd known there was a documentary that was, I think, mostly made by the time the announcement had had. And it had been made quite quickly, really in the weeks before the announcement. So we'd initially thought we'd be seeing this documentary within weeks or months as part of the announcement and it's put together by the Smithsonian channel, but we didn't hear anything. And I was in a, I was in a conference in Norway. I think it was December, 2013. And a um, scholar from Quebec mentioned to me that his neighbor's daughter had been asked to translate. It was one of these strange kind of stories, the text of the gospel of Jesus wife documentary into French for the subtitles. And we all looked at each other at the conference in Norway. and We said, they're going to do it at Easter. Because of course, this is when um, Christians are told every year that what they've learned about Christianity is not true. And it's, it's not enough that we find out that Santa Claus isn't real, but they have to tell us two weeks before Christmas and Easter that it's not as we've read in the Bible or in Sunday school or whatever. And so that was indeed what happened that just a couple of weeks before Easter, the Smithsonian Channel was going to launch the documentary well, we didn't know. Uh, we did know there were scientific tests that were going to be used to look at some of the problems that had been raised. None of us really understood because the problems were really philological. The fact that it was copied from a PDF that didn't exist until 2002 is, uh, poses certain questions that cannot be answered with a laser beam. But in fact, the Harvard Theological Review, which is a well-known journal in... 10th of April 2014 published a series of articles using science that proved that it was an authentic ancient manuscript. 
Now, actually, I did a blog post immediately and said that I didn't feel like the, the, the science was being used to ask the right questions. So the, the answers they were getting were not helpful. Um, it said that there was carbon in the ink, but that didn't show that it was ancient ink. It just showed that somebody knew how to burn stuff. It showed that the papyrus was real papyrus, but you can buy real papyrus off of eBay. So it, it, didn't, it didn't actually seem to even respond in terms of those articles to the questions that have been raised on many online forums. And so that's where the smoking gun comes in. Yeah, so I was in, I was in Germany. Of course, all of us began to, all of the, the kind of shadowy cabal of coptologists and papyrologists who are emailing uh, each other tidbits on this and pieces of information, things we've looked at, things we're thinking about. I got an email from a friend who told me that another friend had found a picture of the John fragment that was in, in the literature associated with it, which had also gone to Harvard. And as I look through in the terms of the science, I think to be scientific, they use the John fragment as a control. In other words, you have a control and a variable because that's how science works, except there wasn't really a logical reason to use this as a control or a variable because there wasn't any, any, um, anything that was being scientifically controlled. But yet, here was a picture of the John fragment. Now, if you remember, my PhD was on John's yep. gospel Right. And that was on translation technique. And I had a colleague who was in Vienna I'm involved with all kinds of people who do Coptic Bible because we all have our little superpowers and we collaborate together yeah. to use them. He was doing a critical edition of John's gospel. So we had actually requested permission of this picture, never gotten it. And so I pulled up the picture before I went home and looked at it and went, oh my goodness, I've only seen handwriting like in this picture one other time in my life. I'd already stayed too late at work, so I went on the bus and got home. And I remember you can hear my heart beating. And I go into my wife when I get home and I say, I can't eat dinner tonight. My mother-in-law was visiting. I have to, there's, there's a new thing with the gospel of Jesus' wife. And went upstairs, typed into my computer the first words that I saw from this thing. And it was John's gospel because I had my little, my little computer program to identify text. Now, I, I tried to read it on my own, but it was throwing me a little bit. Honestly, I couldn't, normally I can just pick up and, and read a Coptic text. And this is written clearly enough. But what I found was that it wasn't in Sahidic Coptic, and that's why I couldn't read it. I had this problem before, is you just have a paradigm that you're reading through. And once you realize that it's written in like Paulton or Bahiric, you shift your paradigm and you can read it just fine. And so I looked at it and I thought, well, there's only one, you know, there's only one other manuscript that would really, there's actually two manuscripts of John and like a Paulton, but only one that would have this passage. And there's a PDF of it that's available online on the internet. Now, there is always PDFs of everything on, on the internet now, but this was, you know, this is 2014 and there wasn't as much and I knew about this one. So I pulled the PDF up and found it. But what was amazing was every single line break was the same. That's only a small exaggeration. The only line break was different was where he would have had to digitally turn the page. And Brilliant. he tried to pull a trick. He misunderstood how the layout of the manuscript was. He tried to com combine lines in such a way that um, it, it would mathematically work out with a codex, and he, the forger failed at that. But mm. immediately, the statistical probability of having every single line bake is right. pretty much impossible. Right. Could you tell us a little bit about the mathematics, I mean, without too much detail, but the kind of maths you use to determine the potential size of this manuscript and why it would be so ridiculous? So this was actually Stephen Emmel, and you have to understand Stephen Emmel and his incredible ability for detail and his passion for codicology. So he, he created every kind of, he created every possible situation that you could to show what this would, and it show that if, if in fact, because we know what the Lycopolitan Gospel of John looks like in terms of texts, 
he figured that it would be the largest codex that had ever existed in in you know the in antiquity that we you know that we would know of. But there were so many little problems like this. For instance, the person who edited, I think it was about 1925 or something like this. He was a great scholar. He edited the Lycopolitan John. He reconstructed holes in his manuscript. It's a manuscript that was in Cambridge that I'd held in my hand when I was a PhD student. And he'd done some things when he reconstructed it where he let it, he, he allowed elements of Sahidic and he made various errors in the, in the Lupunai as he reconstructed them. He was basically right, but his spelling was sometimes wrong. And what's interesting is the forgery actually has these errors mm. because obviously the forger couldn't catch this. And there's other places where the forger is writing around the holes, but there's other places where he's writing through the holes. And you have to make up your mind if you're forging. You have to decide whether the holes were there in the ancient manuscript or not, but they can't be both, right? Mm -hmm. So the same mm -hmm. hole on one side is written around, but then it appears like a letter is lost on the other side. But there's, there's so many little problems with this all throughout in terms of it. I have, I have a list of them online. The key issue, though, is that the scientific evidence actually backfired on Harvard in a sense at this point. The manuscript had been carbon dated, and this dialect is pretty, we're pretty much sure that it was gone mm. by the sixth century, if not earlier. And this, this fragment was dated to like the seventh or eighth century or something like that. So it was pretty much impossible that you could, you could have this. It, it again showed that it, uh, the same handwriting between the manuscripts, the line breaks, and then the almost certain impossibility of Lycopolitan. Mm -hmm. at this at this time in history right. lycopolitan being the dialect that's right yeah so basically what you're saying is that the the science the quote-unquote scientific tests that were run by harvard assumed the antiquity of the john fragment and so when they used it as a control their control actually was corrupt I don't really know what they were looking at in terms of Neither these things I. there are people who do <laughs> ancient inks and I've you know, talk with them about this, and they there doesn't really seem to be a strong logic to it. The the Raman spectroscopy that they use to look at the composition of the inks it, it shows that you have basically the same kind of graphite showing mm. up in John as you do in the, the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. One of the things it did show us is most of us had thought that the provenance paperwork was real. Most of the manuscripts in this little collection that we're moving around were real. We just assumed somebody had cut a piece off of one of them and made one forgery. And what we learned is actually it was really, it was a whole pile of forgeries. Mm. And I don't think even all of this has come out yet, but I'm pretty sure that there was a, there was quite a number of forgeries in the batch. Yeah. So, I mean, this was really definitive stuff, the work that you did to, to demonstrate that this other manuscript that went along with the Gospel of Jesus' Wife was actually, in fact, a forgery. But that still didn't settle the case for some, right? Could you talk to us a little bit about sort of the response to the work that you did? Sure. So just a few points here. My, when we talk about my work, we're talking about this is a fragment that all sorts of people had looked at who are just supposed to be world-class experts. Stephen Immel asked me about it shortly afterwards, and he said, you know, congratulations, well done. How long did this honestly really take you to do? Mm. And it just took about two minutes. So this is something that somebody who vaguely works with Coptic, if you, just, if you have an idea of what the key manuscripts are, it would not take anyone more than 15 minutes if you were actually like just, just doing some very basic work. Mm. Now, I might have been able to do it a little bit faster than someone else, but I'm also reflecting, and I had my PhD for 
yeah. you know, less than three years at that point. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't because I was some kind of a genius or did something. It, it was really, and it, maybe sometimes that's the greatest scholarly discoveries are a flair for the obvious. But in this case, I think something had been overlooked that was actually fairly, fairly obvious. And it didn't take a huge active, you know, a huge amount of work or active genius on my part to discover it. But it did, it did reduce it, I think, to the point of absurdity. So a lot of really the, the feeling among North American scholars changed. And so nobody was, nobody was willing to leave the door open anymore. At this point, it was clearly a forgery. Um, we had finally major news publications, first Wall Street Journal, then New York Times. New York Times was important because that was one of the three, the three outlets that pushed the original announcement that they pulled back and started started making really more clear suggestions that it was it was a probable forgery at this point. Mm-hmm. The documentary still aired, but ironically, the documentary aired now with a bunch of articles coming out that mm-hmm. said, you know, look at this. So it was it was really kind of a nightmare for the Smithsonian. Wow. Yeah. And and speaking of you know, forgery. Let's let's talk a little bit about the collector. Much of the book by Sabar, you know, sort of engages with this character, Walter Fritz. And, you know, he's the, the collector who, you know, originally reaches out to Karen King, we we learn. And Sabar, you know, wrote an Atlantic piece before he published the book this year, you know, about Walter Fritz. And curious to know, like, at what point did Fritz really become a person of interest in this whole thing? So I, I first spoke to Fritz, I'm just going to guess it was about November 2015. This is a bit more than a year after the last set of events with the Harper Theological Review. I got a kind of data dump that had moved through the, some of the people who were still discussing these things. And it involved a picture of a papyrus that had shown up on a, a website, which was, which was now down. But the papyrus picture had, I suppose, a naked woman on it. It had ancient Greek written out with the name of a Titan and Aphrodite and and whatever else. It didn't. It didn't look exactly the same. It was, according to my memory, a different writing instrument. But it was the same really mode of forgery. And the feminine in, images immediately struck me. It was the same kind of ink. Obviously, it was written in Greek and not Coptic. But the Greek script looked like modern minuscule printed script and not like anything you find in a real minuscule manuscript which you'd never find you know, never you don't usually find that kind of thing in papyrus at any rate all of a sudden like all the same bells and whistles went off what was really surprising to me is that the person that it had originally come from was an investigative reporter named Owen Jarris and back 2 months out from the original announcement Owen Jarris had essentially figured out who the owner of the papyrus was. And by figuring out who the owner was, he was um, obviously figuring out someone who would be very closely tied to the forgery, if not the forger himself. Now, this is important because you can't really publish papyri anymore. I mean, you literally are not allowed to if you're in a scholarly society, like the Society of Biblical Literature or the American Society of Papyrologists or something like this, unless you release provenance, which is um, its owner history. And ideally, you even want provenience, which is the, the modern date of discovery of the item. But usually people want you to bring it back to at least about 1970. And in this case, some of the paperwork had been released, not the actual paperwork itself, but the accounts that were in the paperwork. But when questions were raised, first of all, nobody was allowed to actually see the provenance history paperwork 
and the name of the actual owner wasn't released. So Karen's decision was not to release it. This was this was a decision of I, I suppose whoever was making these decisions at Harvard Divinity School. The items had been deposited in the university library, and they were being kept there. They've now been confiscated. So Owen had gone and checked the paperwork, asked some really simple questions, but done the work of an investigative journalist. He'd seen that one of the names was um, someone that would later be identified as Hans Ulrich Laukamp, who had been a German businessman in Florida. He called somebody who showed up on one of the pieces of paperwork, a certain Walter Fritz, and simply asked him, what can you tell me about your former colleague? And I suppose Walter Fritz must have known that Gospel of Jesus' wife was on the, the, the discussion table. And his response was something along the lines of, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I'm not the forger. You've got the wrong guy. At which point, Owen just looked at him and thought, oh, my goodness. Now, I don't know the exact words or exactly what happened, but I do know that within two months, Owen had told me that he had identified this fellow in Florida that he thought was the owner. Wow. And I didn't believe him. In fact, Owen had published a number of pieces on the internet where I could see he was actually circling and he was tearing the provenance paperwork apart and showing that it was impossible. So he was building his case back then. But I think just the, the realities of what, what he could say and publish and prove at the time prevented him from doing it. But by that November, when I saw this piece, it let me know that in fact, this looks, this looks exactly like, and as I started to dig, I started to find more and more minutiae about this Walter Fritz guy that mm. um, fit in. And it led me to actually send his picture to a friend of mine who'd been a student at the Freie Universität Berlin. Mm. who said, yes, I know this guy. And, um, and he indeed was a student here. And I think he might fit the profile for someone who may have been involved in this. Wow. Um, in the background, there was also an investigative journalist who, who worked with it, but didn't, didn't feel like she could publish the story. Mm-hmm. We learn a lot of shady stuff about Fritz from from the book Veritas. I mean, you know, he he actually did study Egyptology, and he sort of knew enough to be dangerous. It sounds, and actually got yeah. an article actually got an article published. Uh, but it turns out we learned that he basically plagiarized from his uh, professor who had sort of lectured on some fresh content that he in turn basically wrote up and published uh, in a in an article that apparently is still kind of a like seminal piece it sounds like from from at least the way that Sabar uh, presents it but we you know we learned that for example Fritz had had sort of plagiarized some diplomas that he you know sort of claimed that he had earned when you know he was applying for certain jobs or whatever in Florida we've all been there right yeah, we've all been there. Uh, but he, he, we learn a, a number of things that sort of fits this kind of circumstantial case that basically says, yeah, Fritz, Fritz was the, the, not only obviously the collector, uh, which he of course was, but, but the forger as, as well. Although that can't be sort of like demonstrably proven, but it seems beyond reasonable doubt, at least he, he knew, he knew um, who did it or he himself did it. My favorite is when um, some of the some of the reports and objections that were coming out in the first few months, or I think even weeks um, after the conference uh, in which it was announced, was people were saying, this just sounds like somebody tried to write Coptic who maybe had taken a semester or two semesters of Coptic and so knows where to split words, but, but doesn't really know Coptic that well. Like, turns out that's like exactly how much Coptic this guy knew. <laughs> like, he had taken, like, one year, I think. I called Fritz at one point, 
maybe even I might have called him twice. But I remember I'd read about him and he was very involved with his city council. And at one point in the city council minutes, it mentioned that he had he had given a tour to his uh, to some visiting German businessmen. And so when I called him, I tried to speak in German because I spoke and lived in Germany for about three years and in my own way, I'm fluent. And I remember him saying, why are you speaking to me in the German? I did not speak to German. He doesn't, he doesn't quite have that thick of an accent. <laughs> but I could tell, you know, like you, you knew that English yeah. was not his first language. Mm-hmm. And the thing that struck me is that he just wasn't being honest. And I think this is one of the things that comes up in the book that obviously you can't prove that Fritz, it's very difficult to prove that Fritz is the forger, mm-hmm. especially without him admitting to it. But he hasn't necessarily, he clearly hasn't been forthright and honest about things. And even mm-hmm. in my discussions with him, you know, he said he wasn't German. He hadn't gone to the, mm-hmm. the um, free university in Berlin and mm-hmm. things like this. So there's, it makes you, it makes you then, it makes him a likely candidate at least. Yeah, right. Of course. So what do you think this whole ordeal really tells us about politics and the function and the state of academia? It makes me ask one question, which about what teaching about the Bible and Christianity should actually look like in the in public spaces, especially in places that are, say, funded by the state and federal government and um, institutions that are supposed to have a broad teaching mandate. So in other words, not a Roman Catholic seminary or a Southern Baptist um, university, but a state university or an elite lo- private liberal arts college, which is supposed to have a wide net. And is the question of really Obviously, all of our interests are going to inform the questions that we ask and the way that we pursue various questions. And there's nothing wrong with that. We just need to be honest about those kinds of things. But can you really have secular education on early Christianity that doesn't end up going down an ideological path that, that really is exclusive to other people? And in some ways, that's the irony here. It's not that, you know, obviously people made mistakes, but when people look at it, what's actually happened looks a lot like the caricature of Christian apologetics. In other words, it seems that certain presuppositions that are ideologically based have actually forced certain conclusions and forced the science that even in the face of real evidence, things have just been pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And so obviously as Christians, we don't want to do this. But, you know, if I was, a, if I was teaching at a, you know, go to a Southern Baptist church, if I was teaching at a Southern Baptist institution, it would be expected that I would teach the creedal statement of the school and things like that. And I would present things in a, maybe a more simple fashion that weren't critically analyzing everything. But can you do that? Like, can you, can a person really rebuild the history of the church and ask critical questions without doing it? And I think one of the problems we have is in creating spaces like society, of biblical literature, and these religion departments that are at these kinds of schools, there's a lot of space for people to do deconstruction but there's not necessarily a lot of place for those other voices that, that might actually have a more traditional view on it. Not even necessarily arguing that, you know, Jesus ascended into heaven and will come back to judge the living and the dead, but simply that, that the manuscript tradition isn't radically different than we think or, or, or certain things like this, that there's not some kind of radical rewriting writing of the history books in the fourth century with the emperor Constantine. So um, you're saying that divinity departments, the Ivy Leagues, maybe have the, or religion departments of the Ivy League, maybe have the semblance of neutrality because they're publicly funded. But you're saying, you know, th- this actually shows that there, there is ideology. So, uh, I mean, I hear you suggesting that if there was no 
ideological impulse or desire to want a text, an ancient Christian text that said Jesus would have a wife, then the scientific tests would not have been done the way that they were done. And we'll get more into the specifics of that later. But you're saying that people shouldn't hide behind ideological neutrality. I think this thing got a tremendous benefit of the doubt from North Americans, not from Europeans, because of a broader, widely rooted interest, not just the places like Harvard Divinity School, which is essentially Unitarian Universalist tradition, but from a large um, North American complex of mostly state universities and some private institutions, which are not seminaries at all. But when we, if we were to look at the membership roles of things like Westar, which is a liberal counterpart to, for instance, IBR, we'd see that while IBR was exclusively people who were at um, Christian, you know, church-owned institutions, Westar really is not. It'll it'll be a pretty strong mix of people who are at state institutions and people are who are at places with a with a with a, some kind of a church mandate. Yeah, I think that ideological point is is really interesting, and I, I think one of the, my main takeaways about the book is that I really think, like in kind of like our our current sort of cultural moment, with all of the kind of you know post post truth dynamics, where you know there's fake news and these sorts of things, there's a real distrust for expertise in general. I mean, we see it in the science at the moment with the CDC guidelines and people just really distrusting authority and expertise. And I really feel like somebody could hear that about this story and sort of just conclude, you know, see, the experts don't know what they're talking about. A Harvard elite got it fooled by a con man and, you know, a lot of people bought into this and et cetera, right? And I really think some people could hear the story and just think, look, Experts don't know what they're talking about. But I, I really see this story from the other angle. And I see, you know, look at the community of scholars sort of contributing their expertise, like Andrew Bernhard and yourself and, and Francis Watson and other people who really chimed in with like important nuggets along the way to demonstrate, right, that the, this is a forgery and this is all fake, right? And, and I really see it as sort of actually buttressing the, the importance of the community of scholars. And so I, 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 I'm curious to kind of hear, hear some of your thoughts about that, that, that this isn't about, for example, experts don't know what they're talking about. Like, that's not the takeaway that we should have from this book, but rather that actually expertise is really what sort of was vindicated in this. It's, this is a hard question because I think everybody will tell, you can, you can do this, you always tell the story according to some pattern and you can, you can create a hero and a villain and things like this. My, my first response to what you said is when you read this book, when you read Ariel Sabar's book and you go through the whole thing and you, you get the whole, the entire story of people finding evidence and, and proving that this is a forgery in so many different levels. One of the last things you get to in the book, not, I don't think it's quite the last chapter, but it, it's this, this is a story of the peer reviewers who were the first scholars really doing counter Karen King's present, presentation. And my feeling is that, um, don't know all the details, but that Bentley Layton, when he looked at it, an absolute you know, titan of the field, is a Yale professor and 
not a neither of these people are social conservatives or you know some kind of crazy evangelical Christians or something. Both of them are friends of the field. I think he he immediately recommended to reject the article. Yeah, I don't think he even really looked at it. He just said this is just obviously a fake. Like, where do you even? There wasn't even a discussion. And then they Harvard Theological Review said really take a deep look at this. We really need a, a rigorous response to this to Stephen Immel. And so Stephen Immel, he, he did give them a, a rigorous response, which we've only found out about now with this book, as I've said. And he essentially figured out everything that it took the rest of us years to figure out. And they had it all there before them. They knew the provenance was bad. They knew it looked like just like Gospel of Thomas. He knew that the problems with the handwriting were insurmountable. There was such an obvious fake. And both scholars said, don't publish this. So that, like you said, the problem wasn't the science. It wasn't that, you know, scholars can't look at things and make radical, you know, rational decisions. The problem was that certain, certain people who controlled the politics of Harvard Divinity School, Harvard Theological Review, did not listen. And and it's still hard to know why they wouldn't listen, why they would expose themselves to such extreme liability. So maybe what you might not want to trust is those those certain administrators at Harvard Divinity School. I think Karen King gets a lot of flack for things, but clearly there's other people making making decisions. I'm involved with peer review right now, and there's peer reviewers making decisions about my my submissions. So as a final question, I was just wondering what you think of Ariel's presentation of Karen King in the book, whether it's fair. I know that she gets criticized for continuing to suggest that the fragment, the Jesus Y fragment could be authentic even after your other's discovery that the, the it, it other fragment was certainly a fake. So I'm just wondering if you think that the presentation was fair, the kind of subtly critical, sometimes maybe explicitly, actually very explicitly critical, uh, comments are warranted, or what, what's your take on Ariel's presentation? So many scholars are going to have a very negative reaction to Ariel's book, not necessarily because they disagree with what they're saying, but because they've had so many positive interactions with Karen King. And I think maybe even the two of you, if you've been at SPL and been in a session where she's there, if there is a graduate student who presents, it does not matter how boring or terrible the paper is. She will raise her hand at the end and ask a question and say something affirming to the graduate students because she's the kind of person who she knows that having a Harvard professor ask a question at your paper and affirm you will be very meaningful and, and helpful. And she just constantly goes out of the way with all kinds of young scholars and young people. I've had scholars tell me that she was not, Karen King was not my doctor mother, but there was a really bad time in my life and Karen King just showed up and it gave me help and support. And, you know, this is the kind of person she was. And I've seen her do that. She's even She's done that with, with me on at least one occasion where she's just gone out of her way to be kind and helpful. Um, obviously, Karen King has, has done some things that are really significant in terms of scholarship. Ariel suggests that she hasn't published a lot, especially in, in one period of her life. And I would say that probably publishing quantity is not really a badge of honor by most any of our marks. As I'm putting together my own volume right now with a bunch of contributors on what people call Gnosticism, it's it's assuming one of the things is contributors sign on is they pretty much have to assume the thesis of her book what is Gnosticism and um, which is which is really discarding it as a useful category in a lot of ways, but she has done several really meaningful things uh, over that that will be remembered for a very long time as a scholar and is clearly clearly very bright. I I guess my my biggest area of concern is it's usually the people who are in the background 
that do it. I, I have the feeling that there are lawyers and press release people who probably encouraged her to not say things at specific points. Clearly, some of the the announcements were orchestrated, and that's something we could talk about further. But Ariel Sabar suggests there was a there was a kind of move in which Harvard Divinity School was threatened and was maybe going to be cast out of Harvard University, replaced with a real religion department. And so all of this may have happened as as a kind of scheme to shore themselves up and make themselves look good. But I it does it does have the appearance that there are we call them public relations and lawyers who are involved in controlling how she responds, what she says. So you're saying that nuance is the criticism that she didn't give certain statements at certain times. I think she was encouraged to, to be very careful and methodologically conservative and, and changing her view and responding to things quickly. And I also think she was, you know, I have no idea what kind of personal attacks that were not kind were coming against her in the midst of all of this too. So she may have been just limiting her, her responses to anything. Yeah, there's definitely a, a sad quality to this, but but certainly Karen is a, a a great scholar and there are some, I would say, some unfair texts in, in, in the book that uh, definitely don't, didn't sit well with me as I was reading. But Christian, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation, for telling us a little bit about what it was like from, from your side of, of it, especially being involved in such a, a pivotal way. In fact, centrally pivotal as you are in act three of this five act uh, book. Uh, and so it, it's great to get uh, some of your insights into how it all went down. Thank you. It's my pleasure. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.